Hello. Welcome to 2100 Podcast. Before this episode about the American military business uh, begins, I would like to invite you all to Cherry Street Pier this Friday to uh, join me to kick off my walk from Philadelphia to Atlantic City to raise money for project ownership. It is in celebration of the success of this podcast and also to raise funds for a very important project that will benefit a lot of kids in the Philadelphia area to teach them about the importance of owning land and a home, building equity, how this country works, things I was never taught about. Thank you. Please come out. Put my Glock away, I got a stronger weapon that never runs out of ammunition, so I'm ready for war, okay? More ready, war 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 ready. your boys lost already, war ready, war ready, war ready, war ready. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four. Three, two, two, two. 2100. It's the 21. Hey, hey, hey. This the 21. Yeah, it's the 21. Yeah, it's the 21. Yeah, it's the 21. Yeah, it's the 21. Hey, 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 hey. Yeah, this the 21. Yeah, you know that you love it. I got a pocket full of dreams in the mouth of the money. It's like almost every day I be reaping something. Have you seen the PT? Yeah, this the 21, yeah, the 21 And I got a picture perfect view for the way that I run it And I'ma tell the whole truth, spreading love like it's nothing This the 21, yeah, this the 21 Welcome to 2100, my name is Jason Peters I am a writer and journalist based out of Philadelphia And also the host, creator, uh, conceiver, and producer of this here podcast, 2100. And to new listeners of 2100, 2100 is a time capsule that is meant to teach the people of the year 2100 what it is like to be alive in the present. Today, I'll be talking about the business of the American military with a man who was in the military for 20 years. He was a lieutenant colonel for the Air Force. He also went on to become a defense contractor and then a lobbyist for both APAC and Booz Allen. So this is a man who knows and understands the uh, the business of war. And he not only, this episode is good because it not only gives an insider's perspective on what the people involved with the American war machine um, are like, but also it gives you an idea of what is going on and what some of these people think. And it gives us a look inside the business of modern warfare. Say something nice now. How, how did you get in here? What, what the fuck is going on? We know who you are. Say something nice about the American military right now. <sighs> how did you even know I was recording this? We know everything, bitch. We're always watching. Now say something nice about the American military. Okay. 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 Um, well... Oh, bastard! Uh, they, 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 they were instrumental in the creation of the internet uh, through ARPANET. Good, more, more. Um, 
Getting involved with World War II was pretty good. Pretty good? I mean, I mean, America waited to get attacked to join, so it's not exactly heroic that they hopped in, and plus, the Soviets did much more to defeat the Nazis than us, plus, any, any good that we did in World War II was negated by dropping the only nukes that the world has ever You just had to keep talking, you just had to keep running your mouth. Nothing can be fucking sacred, not even the fucking military. These goddamn liberal socialist millennials, like, you can't like anything? Why can't you ever be happy? Congrats on your wokeness, your college degree. Welcome to the 2100 Podcast. My name is Peter Jasons, and I'm not even in the military. I'm just a regular, everyday dipshit in 2021, and I fucking love the military. They keep us safe, all the troops are heroes, and anyone who disagrees should be dead. I don't care about the million people we killed in Iraq. We keep us safe. I don't even care that we let veterans sleep homeless on the street, and I don't care that the American military budget is more than $752 billion, despite the fact that we're not at war with anyone. It doesn't matter to me that America has military bases all over the world and rarely discloses what they're doing. I fucking love Call of Duty. I fucking love Marvel movies, the NFL, and all things that are directly sponsored by the United States military. In God we trust. In guns we trust. Camo lives matter. I live in constant fear of terrorism because five people hijacked a plane with box cutters 20 years ago. I pretend to care about freedom, but have traded all my freedom for a false sense of community unity and safety. America is the greatest country on earth and fuck you if you disagree. You can get fucking killed just like Jason and this is how the average American feels about the military. And you know what they say? You'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. Put your name at the top of his list And a statue of liberty started shaking her fist And the eagle will fly And it's gonna be hell When you hear Mother Freedom start ringing her bell And it'll feel like the whole wide world is raining down on you I'm brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue Lieutenant Colonel uh, Rob Levinson, uh, Harvard, Duke, Air Force, Bloomberg. Uh, it's, it's nice to have you on the show. Uh, thanks, uh, Jason. It's great to be here, and I look forward to our uh, conversation. Okay, so you were a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. Let's start there. What uh, made you want to join the military uh, growing up, and where did you grow up? Okay, so I grew up uh, near San Francisco in California, a place called San Carlos, uh, which is about uh, equidistant from San Francisco and San Jose on the on the peninsula. And uh, I think I, probably one of my earliest memories is watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon in 1969. And I think I decided from that time, okay, I want to be an astronaut. And then uh I had to do a career report in fifth grade, and I still wanted to be an astronaut. And then uh, I went and lived overseas in Israel from age of 13 and 14 for a little while. 
And there, you know, most of my high school friends or junior high school at the time, I guess, were, uh, you know, when they graduated high school, I knew they would go into the military. I became friendly with the uh, defense attache at the U.S. Embassy, who was a West Point graduate. Um, and so, you know, that combined with my desire to be an astronaut, I decided to go to the Air Force Academy. Um, so came back to the States, you know, finished high school, went to the Air Force Academy, didn't get to be an astronaut, but uh, did go into the U.S. Air Force, uh, served mostly as an intelligence officer, spent a lot of my career in Latin America. Um, then I, uh, so I did just about uh, 20 years, retired from the military in 2008 uh, worked for a little while as a lobbyist, a little while as a defense contractor. And then just until the uh, end of last month, I was the senior defense analyst for Bloomberg government. I did that for about 10 years, focused mostly on where the defense budget goes, the contracting and the spending and things like that. So that's, that's sort of me. Yeah, I've got a couple questions about things that you mentioned there. Um, So you said in Israel as a child, you became friendly with the defense attache. How does one do that? Right. Um, Okay. So uh, for those who don't know, you know, at most of our embassies around the world, there's a a defense attache. The bigger embassies, there'll be one from every service. So there'll be an army, a Navy, and an Air Force. Who knows now, maybe a Space Force. Uh, Sometimes a Naval attache can be a Marine Corps officer. Smaller embassies may not have all of that staff, but the Israel one has a big one. And I think my parents uh, got friendly with uh, a, a family who was uh, representing uh, Grumman aircraft at the time in Israel. They, I don't know how my parents actually met them. And then they were friends with these embassy people because they were very embedded in the uh, sort of American expat community there. And so this friend of ours, uh, it, it's actually, uh, he, he was a full colonel. Uh, in the army, a Vietnam veteran. He's still a very good friend of mine, um, actually swore me in when I got commissioned as a second lieutenant at the Air Force Academy. And so that that's, you know, it was sort of a social setting, but then I started to talk to him about West Point and the military and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask what, 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 what was your upbringing? Like what, what, what did your, were your parents military? Uh, no, I mean, uh, you know, dad was drafted uh, in between the uh, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Um, so, he, you know, we never saw any sort of combat or anything, served a couple of years in the, in the army. Uh, two of my uncles also served in both the American and the Israeli army. Um, you know, my grandfather was in the Navy again briefly in World War One, but nobody was career military. Um, you know, I didn't I w- wouldn't say we were a military family. I mean, again, people were drafted and served. Uh, but nobody sort of made a career of it. It wasn't it wasn't like the culture. You don't consider yourself a no. military family. No, I mean, you know, I grew up in a sort of, you know, very liberal part of the country and, uh, you know, San Francisco Bay Area. There's no big military bases there. There's no big uh, defense industry. Yeah, I, I would not say I come from a, a military family or military sort of culture. And to be to be candid with you, I think that's what interests me a bit in in your career upon doing my research on you. You know, you're this guy who Harvard, APAC, Booz Allen Hamilton, mm-hmm. Bloomberg, Lieutenant Colonel. But the things I've read that you've written t- tends to be not what I'd expect from someone cut from that cloth. And I think that's that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you do you do you know what I mean at all? Um, well, I think there's a, 
Look, there's a, probably what you're getting at. There's a natural assumption. People can su- uh, assume that uh, sort of everybody in the military comes from a more conservative bent, mm-hmm. sort of culturally and politically. And I would say that that stereotype is not completely wrong. Um, there certainly are, uh, you know, I would say on balance, uh, people tend to, uh, people in the military tend to be uh, sort of more conservative, but there's plenty of us are who, uh, you know, who share views like me. Um, uh, there's there's quite, quite a few of us. Uh, again, you know, I'm part of a product of my upbringing where I grew up and the kind of parents that I had, you know. My parents went to Berkeley and protested the war and things like that. Mm. So, uh, you know, I suppose I'm part of a product of that. It's funny when I was at the Air Force Academy, I was probably considered, you know, Rob the Red or something. But when I went home to California, they thought I had gotten way more conservative. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I consider myself sort of a, a sort of a center left kind of guy. Um, but uh, again, other people may view me uh, sort of differently. So I thought, suppose I don't fit the typical stereotype that people may have, but I think there's some inaccuracy in the stereotype. Like I say, I know plenty of people and particularly in recent years, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot of what I would say, I have lots of particularly military friends or people who've worked in the national security field who are particularly uh, disillusioned with what has happened over the past, uh, you know, four years and have begun to rethink a lot of their politics. Uh, And and that's good to know. That's why uh, I wanted to have someone like you on the show or just someone in general to, to, to give a perspective because I feel I've had a hard time booking people like yourself. Uh, Anyone with a military background, police officers, clergy, anyone who feels like they may have a difficult time talking about their, their, the work they do or, yeah, no, it's it's just it's just very interesting. And and by the way, when I was talking about your writing, I wasn't talking about your politics. I was talking about one specific Ooh. sentence that you wrote in 2019. As you know, I'm from Philadelphia and you wrote in an article about uh, the nationals and nationalism. Uh, salient differences between traditional nationalism and nationalism should be noted, except between Eagles fans and each other. And among drunk English soccer hooligans, sports tribalism doesn't usually lead to violence. You're coming for my Eagles? Yeah. You're coming for how dare you, sir? Yeah, well, coming I from wasn't a rank and file military man, you did you think that this would yes. not be thrown back in your face one day? Did you not think that Philadelphia would would ask you to 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 stand up? That was right after we won the Super Bowl, too. How dare you, sir? Yes. Well, I guess I was coming for the the reputation that Eagles fans have of being rather enthusiastic uh, to the point sometimes of uh, yeah resembling English uh, soccer fans in their enthusiasm for for their Eagles. I'd say similar (laughs) to what you said to me. uh, It's a broad stroke. A lot of the stereotypes about the Philadelphia Eagles are true, but you cannot paint us with a broad stroke. Yes. That's uh, probably looking. I got more. I got in more trouble for that piece with my brother-in-law, the Dodgers fan. So uh, you know, who is of course you know the the black sheep of the family, and we try to prevent him from influencing the children too much. But uh. well, and and I want to ask you candidly about your your career a little bit because that that's sure. it also 
it you do fall into so the reason I had my stereotype about you about potentially dealing with uh, someone who's a staunch conservative um, military man, yada yada, like that kind of thing that you would uh, we both had know about, you know, um, the the military to lobbyist to defense contractor pipeline. Um, how does so you know these stereotypes? I'm a journalist, I know these stereotypes. Mm-hmm. How did you end up working for a defense contractor and uh, as a lobbyist? How did that happen? Why did you decide to do it? I'm just more interested in the thought process behind that, you know? Yeah, okay, so you know, I was coming up on uh, you know, t- about 20 years of service as a lieutenant colonel. Um, and, you know, once you get 20 years in the military, you know, they say every year after that, you're working for half pay because basically you can retire with 20 years of service. I'm 42 years old at that time um, with a 50 percent pension. Um, so now it's, it's, it's kind of a real decision point of what I want to keep working. We had been in the Washington, D.C. area quite some time. Uh, there was potential that if I if I stayed in longer at that point, maybe tried to see if I was going to get promoted again, which was a sort of a 50-50 prospect, um, that we would have to move. And the kids were in school and things like that. And uh, with my background, there were great opportunities in Washington for a post-Air Force career. So that kind of led us to decide, okay, it's time to retire. Well, then, of course, deciding to retire is, okay, what am I going to do now? While the 50% pension is nice, it's not enough really to live off of. Um, so I had, you know, the typical route actually would have been straight to defense contractor. Many, many of my colleagues would go straight to Lockheed Martin or, and I certainly had those opportunities and was recruited. I kind of wanted to do something a little bit different, um, get away from the pure military world for a while. I've been doing it, you know, since I've been 18 years old, basically. And so I, um, you know, I had been uh, active uh, during my military career. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill dealing with Congress. So I became very familiar with how Congress worked and, and you know, sort of uh, policy and that kind of stuff. So I had some skills in that area and some contacts. And I had always been about, I think I mentioned, I had lived in Israel as a kid. My family was very active in pro-Israel kinds of stuff. And I saw an opening at APAC, which is the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. It's not a PAC, by the way, people sometimes think because of the name, but it was actually named that before the law changed and created political action committee. So APAC doesn't give money to candidates. So just want to clear that up because a lot of people get confused about that. But I was a lobbyist. I was hired by them to be a lobbyist, focused a lot on the cooperation between the U.S. military and the Israeli military. Um, those are sorts of issues that I dealt with and uh, only did that for about a year and then, uh, you know, sort of fell back into the typical Booz Allen came calling. Booz Allen is a major, major defense contractor, uh, lots of ex-military people working there. Uh, and so sort of fell into that, although I knew at that time that that was kind of a stopping point. I didn't think I would be there forever. Um, and then this new thing came up, Bloomberg, which was creating this new division in Washington. Literally, I think they had an ad in the Washington Post that said, Bloomberg is looking for people in Washington. I think that's the extent of the ad. And all I knew, I knew who Mike Bloomberg was, but I knew nothing about the company or whatever. And, you know, they pulled me in and there was this long recruiting process, but they said, yeah, you've got, you've got a defense background, you've been a lobbyist, you've been a defense contractor. Those are all the sorts of people we envision this new service called Bloomberg Government will cater to. 
uh, you'd be perfect for us. And so one thing led to another and, uh, you know, they, they made me a nice offer and I did that. And I did that for up until last month for 10 years. So people listening at home, both in 2021 and in the year 2100 might not be fully aware of what a defense contractor is. And I do think it's kind kind of hazy. I, I, I like the understanding of what one is versus like what you did, like in layman's terms to someone who does not know what is a defense contractor and, and also talk about some of the work you did if you could. Yeah. So broadly speaking, so the, the department of defense spends about 500 now about $500 billion a year, maybe a little bit less um, on goods and services from private companies of one form or another. Now, people are mostly familiar with the, with the big goods, like building an aircraft carrier or F thirty five fighter jet, submarine tanks, the sort of big pieces of hardware, and that's 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 big stuff that the military builds. Companies like Lockheed Martin and Boeing and people like that build a lot of those big pieces of hardware. But the military also contracts for a tremendous amount of services. These can be everything from financial services to serving food to troops. Um, you know, uh, all kinds of consulting, studies, analysis. And, and when I worked for Booz Allen, that's kind of what I did. I wasn't bending metal, so to speak. And Booz Allen is not a metal bending company. It provides sort of a vast array of services. A lot of these are, uh, these days are related to information technology. So a lot of design of systems, cybersecurity, all that kinds of stuff. So, so there's a lot of folks, and in many cases, there, there's and what I did for Booz Allen, it's often called, uh, you know, the uh, colloquialism is butts in seats. Um, basically, I for Booz Allen, I was working in the Pentagon, and I was doing the same job that there was a DoD civilian on one side of me and a military officer on the other side of me. We were all doing the same job. It's just that we wore sort of different uniforms and got paid in different ways. So sometimes the military, the contractors are really just supplementing the staff of the government, either the uniform staff or the DOD civilian staff. And, uh, and that's what I did, particularly in my year with Booz Allen. Quick question, what is metal bending? Well, when I say metal bending is meaning building big pieces of hardware, you know, building an aircraft carrier. You know, that's what we refer to those contractors as, you know, people bending metal. But there are a lot of these companies like Booz Allen that don't, they're, they're not involved in building hardware. Uh, you know, some of the big services companies like Lockheed Martin, which builds fighter jets, also provides a lot of services. They do both. Some of those bigger companies will do both. But often companies specialize. Either they make stuff or they provide some kind of services. But the bigger ones do a lot of both. Here's a rather naive question, but a question that people are wondering at home. Uh, why does – oh, pup, puppy in the background? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why she's making noise. All good, all good. All right, go ahead. Um, so people may be wondering, when you talk about defense contractors and you're sitting next to these people doing a very similar job and all this money that's spent, why doesn't the military do this it, itself? That's a, that's a very good question. The way I explain it, um, I, I've often explained this to people. If you remember, uh, if you watch old World War II movies, right? Sometimes you'll hear that they're going to put the soldiers on KP, kitchen patrol, right? They're going to make the soldiers peel potatoes, right? 
Well, World War II, we had a draft and we had an army of 8 million men, okay? And we were paying them drafty wages, right? So we could make soldiers peel potatoes. Now today in Afghanistan, for example, there are still soldiers and they still need to eat. So somebody needs to peel the potatoes, but we don't have soldiers peeling those potatoes anymore. We have contractors peeling the potatoes because we have an all volunteer military now. We pay them much better. They are much more expensive and we don't have the surplus manpower to do. You don't want uniformed people. You know, you generally want the uniformed people to focus on the real you know, fighting the enemy kinds of tasks or stuff very close to it. And all of that sort of back end office of, you know, human resources and finance and, and, and personnel stuff and housing and all of that, to the greatest degree possible, you want civilians, either a government civilian in some cases, in other words, an employee of the Department of Defense who's a civilian, not a uniformed person, or you hire contractors to do it. And there's a constant debate about whether this is more expensive or less expensive. <laughs> and it all depends... On all, all depends on how you count. For example, you know, me as a military officer. So, you know, I had a salary. Now, a contractor might be paid a higher salary than me, but the military also provided me with medical care and housing and things like that. And in fact, because I served 20 years, the military is providing me with medical care until I'm dead and my wife. Um, so, so it, it, over the lifetime, I'm a pretty expensive asset, a military person is a fairly expensive asset. So a contractor may get a higher annual salary, but once he leaves the job, you know, the military is not on the hook for anything from him. Um, so, but there's this constant battle back and forth as to how much should be done by contractors, DOD civilians or military. And, and it goes back and forth, it ebbs and flows over the, over the years. And, and I think uh, to the people of the year 2100, um, this is an extremely um, regular thing in, 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 mo- in the modern economy. Most people I know, I work on contracts. I, I, it's been impossible for me to find a full-time job. Most people I know are shifting to full-time freelance work because this shift in the American military is reminiscent of a shift throughout the entire economic sphere. It's, it's the Uber model. It's, it's, it's all essentially the same thing. It's this shift from employees with pensions to freelance contract workers who now have uh, the burden kind of on themselves, or at least the burden is being placed elsewhere. Uh, And sometimes you'll make more money. Sometimes you'll make less money, but yeah, it is kind of the peeling potatoes analogy makes sense. But, and I, and you do, and here's my question for a thing like a military, I do think what I would worry about doing, doing with something like this is, um the cohesion of your unit you know I, I would think that maybe you would want people who are in uniform peeling the potatoes so then you have like a unit of diverse people with diverse skills that can do different things you know and and it, I, but maybe i i'm not i know nothing about the military i only know what i've read and what i've studied well, i would say yeah. first, um you know uh to your first point about uh you know the uh, the, 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 the new economy with all of this sort of Uber work or, or contracting work like you talk about, you do. Uh, yeah, the military set aside the, the whole combat and, you know, killing people and breaking things side of it. The military as employees, you know, I always say that uh, the, the military employee has greater benefits than, uh, you know, the leader of a Scandinavian union. Um, you know, I had, uh, you know, you have full health care for you and your family completely covered. Like I say, my wife and I got it. So we like, 
I had a defined benefit pension, you know, not, not, uh, not a 401k, but a defined benefit pension. I got 30 day paid vacation a year. I got um, my education paid for, you know, the military paid for my undergraduate education, for my graduate education, you know, fully paid for um, that we have subsidized childcare. I mean, you know, like I say, anything that you would get in sort of a Scandinavian, you know, very generous sort of social safety net, the military has. You know, it's, it, it, it often people point this out, the contradiction. You find these very conservative military people and say, you know, you have a more socialized benefits than, than virtually any other American. You know, it's sort of like defined benefit pension. Who has that anymore? But we still got that in the military. Now, it's, it's actually been changed now. Um, it's been modified um, so, so that's that's very uh, true. Uh, now, you had another question. I'm sorry, I, I, I lost the the thread there, but um, you asked me a, a, another question. I, I've got I've got tons of things to talk about. Uh, sure. So we could skip past whatever I said, and the listeners can enjoy, <laughs> can enjoy whatever we said. Um, so, t- you you were a military. You were in the military for two decades. You you did a lot of work in Central America, and then I read your article on Central America and military intervention in Central America, and you said that you pointed out how a lot of it has been messed up and and not that good. How how do you feel these things and and do these things? You know, what type of work were you doing in Central America? Because I'm not even sure people are aware of what goes on in Central America at all. Like people my age don't know anything about like the Dole Fruit Company or like any of it. They don't know any of it. They don't know any of that. Uh, And we could get into some of that. Maybe I'll drop in some news audio here. But America News. The United States has intervened in South America and Central America, replacing left-wing leaders with right-wing leaders and military dictatorships as a part of the Truman Doctrine of Containment in the Cold War because Americans feared, well not Americans, American elites and business interests feared communism and a communist spread, and, and the remnants of that still exist today and you'll hear why. Like. Fear of communism drove America to back military dictator Hugo Banzar in Bolivia in 1971, and America continues to intervene in Bolivian politics to this day in 2021. America helped uh, topple social democrat Joao Hallart in Brazil, and the CIA intervened in Costa Rica and attempted to overthrow the Cuban Revolution dozens of times, attempted to kill Fidel Castro and Che Guevara a number of times. In support of Global Capital and the American United Fruit Company, the American military supported dictators in Guatemala. Nicaragua was occupied by the American military from 1912 to 1933 to protect business interests. Tens of thousands were killed in Panama attempting to build the Panama Canal, which America illegally bought the rights to from France, who did not legally own the land. America continues to meddle in Venezuelan politics and currently referred to Juan Guaido as the president despite Nicolas Maduro having broad popular support. Some military contractors, defense contractors, literally washed ashore and were were captured by the Venezuelan government attempting to start a coup, and then they abandoned a bunch of revolutionaries in a motel in 2020 or 2019. Uh, We do this so often it's hard to remember, but similarly, uh, America continues to economically attack both Cuba and Venezuela through sanctions while exploiting the rest of Central and South America for resources, selling weapons throughout, and weaponizing poverty for political and economic gain. Did did, did you know 
that the global north takes 2.2 trillion dollars worth of commodities from the global south each year? Did, did, did you know? That the migrant crisis in South and Central America is mostly America's fault because American military contractors have sold weapons and the American military has trained border patrols in Mexico to be ruthless towards migrants from Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and the Global South, leaving them for gangs to, to attack and be violent towards? Well, now you do. And that has been your America News! Uh, no, what were you up to in, in Central America? And how, how, just talk to me about it. I'm just interested in what was going on. Okay. Yeah, so I got to, uh, so I graduated the Air Force Academy uh, and became an intelligence officer. Um, so I went to about six months of training down in uh, Texas. And then my first assignment was to uh, Panama. Um, Panama, uh, you know, we had we had a large military presence in Panama dating back to World War II, you know, even pre-World War II because of the Panama Canal. Um, and so uh, uh, I, I spent my time and I went back and forth to Panama. I had a couple of assignments there, both at a, a tactical Air Force level and then at, at a, a what's called the U.S. Southern Command, which was responsible for all U.S. military operations in sort of uh, all over Latin America, Central, South America, and the Caribbean. Um, so as an intelligence officer, you know, it's your job to find out, you know, sort of what the bad guys are doing and be able to tell the commander what the bad guys are doing. Now, in wartime, that's sort of easy. You know, it's the enemy's military that you're worried about. You know, how, what, what kind of tanks do they have? How well can they fight? And sort of, you know, what, what can they do? What are they going to do? so that the, 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 your commander can figure out how best to, to deal with that problem. In peacetime, um, what the intelligence community spends a lot of time is looking at developments in foreign countries, you know, political developments, economic development, social development, anything that might create a situation whereby uh, a military response could be necessary. One of the things common is um, what we call non-combatant evacuation. And th this has to happen you know, not not that irregularly, where a country sort of blows up, falls apart, there's a civil war, you've got an embassy and a bunch of Americans who need to get out to just get them safe. And the U.S. military will be called in to go get those people out. Um, and so you, we, as the intelligence community, we want to know about those things ahead of time so we can prepare if, you know, say country XYZ is getting a little unstable there, Okay, do we have the sources, the resources in place? Are the airfields good? How would we pull people out of there if we need to? Getting ready, do we need to just reinforce the embassy, throw a few more Marines there to protect it? Those kinds of things. Um, so, you know, my time in Latin America was mostly spent, you know, looking at those, occasionally looking at there were terrorist groups in Latin America. You know, what are they up to? Is there a big threat? Are they going to threaten Americans, threaten U.S. assets? and sort of provide that advice upward to people who had to make decisions about that. And, and you know, that, that's what an intelligence officer does, is keeping tabs on the other guy, whoever the other guy is, and trying to explain what's going on and then what you think might be, what might happen in the future. Uh, and I'm gonna ask a question that once again, it, it, might be, it might seem naive, but I think it's, it's a reasonable question to ask for the people of the future and the present. If it's peacetime, why are you there? Well, you know, that, look, that's a huge area of debate. The United States has about 800 military bases of one form or another 
around the world. We're a superpower. You know, a lot of this is a legacy of World War II. Um, and as a superpower, you know, we have alliances. Some of, some of those bases are to help allies defend themselves against threats and things like that. But that, that's a source of, of debate. You know, what does the U.S. military, what do the American people want the U.S. military to do in the world? How, how involved should we be in the world? It's, it's, it's a very legitimate area of debate. Um, you know, I think you saw in the last administration under President Trump, there was some discussion, you know, he wanted to pull troops out of Afghanistan. We're now pulling troops out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, out of Syria. You know, it's, yeah, it's a question is where do we put our soldiers? You know, we're, we're putting them there to influence the situation in some way. And some people, you know, and, and like you mentioned, the article I wrote about U.S. about intervention and regime change around the world. But, you know, our history on this, uh, you know, has not been real good in many cases, uh, you know, uh, and, and those are all part of decisions that are made in Washington about, you know, where we should be and what we should be doing. And the American people have a role to say in that. And it's, a, it's a constant source of debate. And I do think it's, it's a very it's a very unique thing to get to talk to someone like yourself about. And I appreciate you like taking these questions even and not getting angry at me for asking them because uh, like and especially Panama, like the, the little I know about Panama is just uh, the heavy U.S. intervention in their politics to, to get the Panama Canal made. We were fighting with France about who would have control over the Panama Canal. And then we fought about who got it made and the sources of funding were messed up. And tens of thousands of Panamanians died uh, creating the Panama Canal under mostly American management. And, and then it's just, it's just crazy. You know, the American military industrial complex, this thing that you have, have made a career of, and it's, 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 I'm happy to be able to talk to someone like yourself about it, but how do you deal with like the conflicting nature of the negative side of what the American military and what the com military industrial complex and these billions of dollars are going towards? How do you kind of manage the, the things that you know and disagree with compared to the things that you are being asked to do, like as your job, like, and I'm, I'm just asking that as yeah. someone, these are things I've always wanted to ask someone like you and I'm, I'm happy no. to have the opportunity. It's a, it's a fair question. Uh, and, and I don't object to it at all. Uh, you know, when, when you, when you sign up for the military, really, when you sign up for any government service, you know, I once applied for the state department as well and almost went to become a foreign service officer in the state department. And one of the things when they make you the offer in the state department is they say, you have to sign a piece of paper that says you understand that you may not agree with the foreign policies of the United States, but you will not voice those concerns publicly, you know, continue to do this job or something to that effect. I remember, I forget the exact words, but the idea is you can object internally say, Hey, I think this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be doing this. But other than that, you know, you work for the U S government and those decisions are made by the elected leaders. Well, that's true of the military too. The president of the United States is the commander in chief. Now, having said that, you know, uh, there is a point at which you have to decide, you know, is there, are there things you will not do? Um, you are obligated never to, you know, we are still bound by the law and you have to follow the law um, and you have to follow your own conscience. You know, if you feel an order is so immoral that you cannot carry it out, then you have to be willing to refuse to carry that out. Now, I didn't, I didn't have high stakes things like that happen to me. I did have occasion to people who, who 
recommended courses of action that might have been skirting the law that I thought, and I voiced those concerns. And because I voiced those concerns, that those things didn't happen. At least they didn't happen with me being involved. And to my knowledge, they didn't happen. Um, because in some cases, and I won't say this was always malicious, some people didn't sort of think through the implications that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing that kind of a thing, or, or we're going to break some rules if we do that. And so people thought better of it, and we decided, okay, we're not going to do that. Um, and these weren't huge, big moral questions or anything. But, um, you know, you have to decide, look, I believe in the United States of America. I believe in our role in the world. The U.S. military has done wonderful things. We have liberated places. Look, I was in Panama, and we liberated that country from a dictator um, who was an awful guy. Uh, that's not to say everything we did is perfect. It's not to defend every action of the U.S. military around the world. I can't do that. Um, but again, those, a lot of those are policy decisions which are made by civilians who are elected and the American people elect them and they have to make those decisions. And, you know, when I've had disagreements, I voice those disagreements. But, you know, if they got so egregious, then I have to decide if I still want to do this. I never was pushed to that point. Um, but, uh, you know, every person sort of has to, has to make those decisions for themselves. So let's, let's focus on the future a little bit. Um... What what in your opinion is uh, the future of of this in of of we'll start with the industry we'll start with the defense industry. There's this huge amount of money. You had mentioned five hundred and some billion going towards defense contractors, and that's just a smidgen of the overall cost of the military. Um, where right. do you and and. Where do you see the defense industry headed? Uh, think of the year 2100 and advances that could be made and think back to the past as a frame of reference is something I always tell people. I always look 100 years back to look 100 years forward. So, no, just talk to me about what you think the future of this industry is. You are probably the person, you were an analyst of this industry for the last 10 years. Uh, I, I'm just, I, I'm just curious. Well, uh, if you look at the U.S. Uh, defense budget, really since the, the modern era, which we sort of date as the post-World War II era, it ebbs and flows. It goes up and it goes down. And I'm talking, you know, inflation adjusted terms, you know, real terms. Um, you know, it went up tremendously uh, right in, in, you know, under Harry Truman in about 1948 to 1950. We had the Korean War. And we had the looming threat of the Soviet Union and, you know, things things dropped down. They went up during the Vietnam War. And then, you know, the, the spending since 9-11 has been at a fairly high in historical terms, a fairly high level. Um, now it's seen as kind of flattening out. Um, you know, we're, we're drawing from Afghanistan. We're trying to get out of some of these other places. Uh, the big key driver that everybody is focused on is really what happens with China. You know, uh, if there's everybody kind of agrees that for good or ill, the most significant, you know, uh, geopolitical event that is taking place right now is the rise of China as a global power. You know, I mean, China's always been a big country with a lot of people, but now it's an economic power. And that is also leading to a lot of military power because it has the money so it can spend like we do, you know, on on military stuff and sort of begin to flex its muscles. Um, and so, you know, we went through this period where we had this global rival, the Soviet Union, that fell apart in 1989. Uh, and we kind of had this era where we were sort of the sole superpower, what they call the, the unipolar moment, if you will, 
And then we had the rise of terrorism things, but terrorism is still not, you know, to fight terrorism doesn't require the kind of resources that taking on another superpower might. So now the question is, can we come to, uh, you know, a way that we and China can sort of live together in the same world without coming to blows? I mean, I think nobody really wants to come to blows with China. We recognize that would be disastrous. And, and, and what is different about China from the old Soviet Union, you know, for all the old Soviet Union was an economic basket case. I don't think the old Soviet Union's GDP ever exceeded that of Holland. Um, the amount of trade that we had with the old Soviet Union, I think, amounted to at best $10 billion a year. China, we do $10 billion a month or more. Um, so China and us are integrated economically. You know, the, this computer that you and I are talking over probably has parts made in China. Um, you know, if you have an iPhone, there's pieces of that are made in China. You know, everything is made in China, whatever it is. So it's, it's very interesting to say, on the one hand, here's a, a country that's a competitor and a strategic competitor, but we're also inter, interlinked economically. And that's a very different dynamic than what happened with the Soviet Union. Soviet Union, we were not linked with economically. It was all about strategic competition, but we didn't have to worry about they were going to cut us off from some supply or something. That just wasn't a factor. Um, so, you know, managing this relationship with China and where that goes, you know, if, if let's say the relationship goes badly and we get more and more confrontational with China, that will translate into more money for the military. People will see it more and more of a threat and they will want to spend more money on it. If, on the other hand, we are able to figure out a, you know, a way to live in the same world with China and compete, but without the risk of coming to blows, then you won't see so much incentive for you know, increased military spending. But China is really the driving factor in Washington here that everybody's talking about. No, that makes sense. I pay a great deal of attention to international politics and all of what China's doing in Africa right now, and 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 China's development in general is is shocking. And it's it's kind of like you reap what you sow. If you're America, the West demanded China opened. Now now they're open, and and now we're scared of them because they're too open. And <laughs> we we taught them capitalism, and now they're using the capitalism against us. And, uh, and, and it's just kind of, you know, there was, there, there was a prevailing theory that as they become more capitalistic, they would become more free and more open and more democratic. Uh, that theory has been long since discredited. That has not happened. If anything, China is more repressive today than it has been in the recent past. So it has become, as you say, capitalistic very much, you know, communism, whatever that means anymore is kind of a label, but it is a very much, it, it, the state has a big role, but it is a con, capitalistic, entrepreneurial kind of a company with, you know, country building building stuff and people making lots of money. Um, and, but it is not free by any stretch of the imagination. And so that th there was that theory, that hope that, oh, get them to trade and become capitalistic and they'll become democratic. Well, that's not happening. And everybody pretty much acknowledges that didn't happen. Uh, so now we got to come up with uh, sort of a new game plan. The year 2100, is America a superpower? Is, is, is America the superpower? What does the landscape of 2100 look like from someone like yourself? Will there be a World War III? Are we seeing nukes dropped? Let, give me all your spicy hot takes with your military brain. Uh, yeah, well, look, I, I, I hope that we can avoid 
you know, what we call a great power war. You know, people people don't many people don't realize there's a great book by Steven Pinker called The The Better Angels of Our Nature. Uh, he's a professor at some Ivy League school, I think, at Harvard or somewhere. Um, and the point is, the, the period since the end of World War II has been the most peaceful and the most prosperous in all of human history. Um, yes, th- there has been conflict. Um, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, other wars that we weren't involved in, but in places in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, certainly there have been war and there's been violence of one form or another. But overall, compared to previous eras, it is way, way less. Um, and the big thing we've avoided is what I say, a great power war. Two big wealthy countries or more going to power. Because when great power war happens, i.e. World War II or World War I or the Napoleonic Wars, go back. When big powers start to slug it out, things really, really go bad. And it's really, really bad. And lots of death and destruction and politics gets all messed up and, and human advancement doesn't move forward. Um, so, so, you know, we've had this period since World War II of, of relative peace, again, compared to our human, all of human history. Um, and, you know, we hope that that can continue. Um, but, you know, things can go bad. Um, you know, the interesting thing with nuclear weapons, I mean, look, we got them. We're the only country who's ever used them on anybody. They're pretty horrible. Most people who have them recognize how horrible they are and recognize that, you know, they're interesting as a threat, but actually using them and, and then inviting retaliation by your enemy of using them on you, uh, that's really kind of a no-win situation. So you hope that cooler heads will prevail and, and things like that. The other thing we're seeing is the rise of threats or threats that threaten everybody. Um, two that I would point to, well, the most recent look at COVID. You know, it didn't matter if you were China or the kind of government you have or what your ideology was. COVID's a global threat. It threatened everybody. It hurt everybody. And, and, and the only way to deal with it is to cooperate. You know, we're vaccinating everybody in the United States. But if we don't get a handle on this in other countries in the world, it's going to come back to bite us. You know, we, we as a world community have to figure out how to tackle this. Um, another example might be climate change. You know, again, this is not something that one country can solve. Um, there has to be some sort of a global approach to this. If we don't get this right, if we can't get a handle on this, the effects on human well-being and, you know, perhaps G-flows or countries run out of food because their crops fail, things like that. Um, you know, the potential for instability caused as a result of climate change are, are yeah, problematic. I think so I think we're already seeing that. I well, think, I think, yeah. you know, there's been some papers written, like some of the upheaval in Syria or Egypt had to do with the rise of bread prices and the rise of bread prices had to do with climate issues, exactly. you know, and crops there, there, there's, there's academic papers that link climate change to some of these things. So yes, I would say that we're already seeing, um, you know, the first inklings of, of, of climate driven problems. The U S military's dealing with climate change, simply the, the impact on our bases, you know, Norfolk Naval base, which is the largest Navy base in the world keeps having to raise their docks because the sea level's rising. You know, and that costs a lot of money. Several U.S. military bases uh, in the past few years have been devastated by storms, you know, flooded buildings and aircraft damage and all these kinds of things. So, yes, these are costs that are being incurred. And again, climate change is one of those other things that no one nation can can fix. 
It's not uh, one nation's them, responsibility. We have there's a great intersection there because the American military is the biggest climate change, uh, not climate change, carbon emissions producer in the world. It is the biggest polluter right. in the world. So why don't we start at home? You know. Well, and there's 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 a lot of effort, um, you know, in the military to reduce its carbon footprint, to go to electric vehicles, uh, to find ways to to you know better contribute to. Uh, or not contribute to climate change. There's huge, the largest solar plant in the United States is on an Air Force base in Nevada. Um, uh, you know, wind power, things like that. There's also some very practical reasons like in uh, uh, Afghanistan, you know, uh, one of the places where a lot of our troops got killed is convoys on the road. Well, those convoys are often hauling fuel around. So if you can make the base self-sufficient with wind power and with solar power, then you don't need to put a convoy on the road, bring in a truck full of fuel, and that's less Marines and Army soldiers on the road who are vulnerable to attack. Um, so there's very practical reasons. It's not just to be good green citizens or something. There's some very practical reasons. Um, it's also obviously that, you know, depending on petroleum, which is often located in parts of the world that are very volatile, you know, getting away from that uh, has advantages for us as well. So th there's lots of good reasons. But you're right. Yeah, the military, particularly the Air Force, where I'm from, you know, because, you know, flying planes around burns a lot of gas. I mean, that's the bottom line. And and therefore, you know, emits a lot of carbon. Quickly, you talked about two two uh, superpowers fighting. Um, right now, I don't think a lot of people are aware of this, but uh, India and China have had a lot of flare-ups between the two of them. And that's the only major, like, that. that is where I think a World War Three could start. Or if they, if they fight, I don't imagine it would stay isolated, you know. And uh, and like and then what we see Azerbaijan, Armenia, Israel, Palestine. Uh, there's a couple of Latin American countries. Uh, Brazil, I think, could be argued to be on like the precipice of some horrible internal conflict. Uh, Colombia. No, there's there's stuff happening everywhere. And some could argue America, like between the George Floyd unrest and the protests that we saw last summer and how that none of that seems to be getting remedied anytime soon, at least not under Biden. What do you think the lingering of effects of all these less these 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 conflicts that are happening now? What do you think the the future of them are? Take us to the future a little bit. Uh, wh what do you think the future geopolitical scenario is moving towards 2100? Well, uh, you know, again, uh, going back to the, as you say, using the past to look forward, in the era of us competing with the Soviet Union, there was often an effort, like in these, if you will, the little wars in other places. We'd pick a side, the Soviets would pick a side, Proxy and, you know, wars. for whatever, in, right, proxy wars. But at the same time, while we might pick a side and arm our side, if you will, we were careful not to let those things get out of hand. You know, there are good examples. The Arab-Israeli War of 73 started to get very dicey. Um, you know, the Soviets started talking about airlifting troops to Egypt. And then we got excited and started putting our nukes on alert uh, and then, you know, basically we talked the Israelis down. They had the Egyptian army completely surrounded and could have wiped it out. We basically talked them off of doing that and sort of calmed things down. The Cuban Missile Crisis. There were times where both we and the Soviet Union realized, OK, guys, we don't want to get into a bigger fight. So let's figure out ways to calm this down. And then 
you know, oftentimes in Central America where I worked, you know, eventually, particularly after the end of the Cold War, we and the and the Soviet Union or the Russians worked to sort of settle those conflicts, get peace agreements, you know, end, end the fighting. Um, so, you know, it could be that we get into this game where it's picking a proxy and we pick a proxy and into the China has not shown a lot of that behavior up till now. Um, you know, China, for all of its growth and power and flexing muscle, still is mostly regional. Um, you know, it's in the South China Sea and Spratly Islands and places like that. Now, as it gets more wealthy, it may start to flex its mother's muscles a little further. But it's been very reluctant to, to get too involved in, in conflicts, sort of far-fund conflicts. Uh, and, and we're sort of, on the side of the United States, we've kind of learned that these things often don't work out very well for us. I mean, both Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, the general consensus of these things did not work out too well for us. We spent a lot of uh, blood and treasure in these places to not very good ends. And, uh, and so there's a little bit more reluctance perhaps in the United States. So those can be very positive things in that, you know, work to end these conflicts um, rather than sort of escalate them. Um, let's hope that that prevails. I, I'm not saying it will, but um, I think there's there's certainly reason reason for that. You know, again, one of the things about China, as I said, it's an economic power in a way the Soviet Union wasn't. But that also means that China has no interest in disrupting global trade. China is dependent on global they're trade. They're in the system. Right. They're, they're part of the system. Now, they might want to tweak that system to, you know, that system was basically built by us again, at the end of World War II with the Bretton Woods agreements and all of these things, we built that system. And it, it, it's had tremendous advantage for us. But China's gonna wanna tweak those rules somewhat, but it doesn't wanna completely upset, you know, the Soviet Union called itself a revolutionary power. They wanted to upset the whole apple cart. Uh, China really has no interest in doing that because it benefits from the system as it is. You know, China has lifted for whatever the tyranny of China, they've listed hundreds of millions of people out of desperate poverty. And they've done that by trade. You know, they make stuff and they sell it to us and they sell it to other people. And that lifts up their economy. They don't want to disrupt that. And war is tremendously disruptive to trade. So, you know, hopefully those things can, those moderating things can, can manage to, uh, to, to keep things, again, uh, this era of peace that has extended since the end of World War II hopefully can keep going. Got it. Um, I'm, I've got two more things I'd like to ask you about. And, and, and this, this first one, you can deny to do this. I would like to share some <laughs> of my thoughts and opinions on some of the things we, we've talked about. And I would like you to rebut or disagree to, to your heart's desire, because I, I, I do crave like honest, uh, you know, discourse with someone who knows what they're talking about. And that's how I form my worldview. Um, and, 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 and I do not mean any harm when I, when I, when I say no, these things about it. or ask these yeah. questions. Um, I, I do believe the military industrial complex to essentially be a, a scam and a money laundering effort where they, they circulate money through each other and they quote each other the prices they want, because I believe that most of the economy is a scam. I, I've, I've worked in it and I've seen how a lot of it is done. And uh, I do think that a lot of it is, and I, I think that everyone, China 
included is a part of this thing that is that is perpetually going and going. I'm a lefty, lefty 26 year old. I, I, I don't like war. I don't like intervention, all of that. Uh, super against uh, fi- I'm a, my family's a victim of the financial crisis. We are skeptical, angry people, and we, we all fall on different places. Uh, but I am extremely skeptical of a lot of things. And in a lot of my international travel, I've seen that America has gotten less respect than, than anticipated. They have said bad things to me almost everywhere I go. When they hear my accent, they are skeptical of me immediately. Um, no, and, and I'm worried about America going forward. I, I'm, it upsets me to live in a country that I don't agree with most of the time even though I agree with the principles that it allegedly follows that I don't agree with. Like I would love the constitution if if I thought it was what we were doing, you know, Uh, I I find us to be a very hypocritical society. And I, I worry that by 2100, we will not be a superpower. And um, yeah, I think if I had to guess who's going to win this battle, I think China wins. I think that they will be able to get the things to go their way because they, we gave up all of our power. America, we don't make anything. We're the idea econ- economy. We are, we, we have given everything away. The, 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 there's defense contractors in the Pentagon. There's pen, the, the, the hospitals are privately owned. We're not producing anything. It's, I, I just don't think we have a leg to stand on moving towards the future and uh, because people like me don't have skills, I don't have a skill. I'm a writer. I'm a I'm a talker. That's not going to feed people in a crisis. You know, if if shit hits the fan and China decides to do an American embargo, what the fuck are we going to do? <laughs> like that is where my head is. And and I do worry. I'm I'm not a patriot, but I, I obviously want America to do well because me and everyone I love is here. And, and I just, I, I would just like, what do you think about uh, like a, a 26 year old saying some words like that? Well, I, I think what you're reflective of, look, I, if I were to have a concern about our nation right now, it is much less about foreign threats than the internal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are an incredibly divided nation right now where we we're incredibly polarized um, and and sort of goes into even the psychological motivations for polarization and where we are as a country is pretty divided, um, probably only exceeded by the period beginning, you know, prior to the Civil War. Um, and, 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 and don't take that too far. I don't think we're on the verge of civil war in the United States or anything like that. But we are terribly divided where um, there people are are increasingly seeing fellow Americans as not having anything in common with them. Uh, and this is, is not healthy as a democracy. And I worry about that. And, and I think it, it feeds into some of the disillusion of younger people as to, you know, all the ideals. And, and, and you're right. Look, I know that you read the Constitution, those ideals are perfect and beautiful. And there's very little to argue about them as ideals. Um, uh, the Constitution is as near perfect a document as, as one could imagine, probably created by humans, you know, in the in the late 18th century. Um, but we also know that the implementation of that, the fealty to those ideals that were embedded in there, leaves an incredible amount to be desired, let's just say. 
but you know there are vast ugly parts of, of American history and and we haven't reconciled all of those yet as you pointed out with George Floyd protests and whatever you know our, our, our original sin of uh, racial division we're still wrestling with you know from you know for over 400 years of, of dealing with this problem even before we were a nation um, so yeah there's tremendous internal divisions I, I, I still I guess I'm a, generally still an optimistic person because I believe what's right with our country is more stronger than what's wrong with it. I've seen periods where we've gone through things. You know, I was raised uh, from people who marched for civil rights and things like that. Whoever thought that those things would have occurred? You know, I have, uh, who would have imagined that, you know, uh, gay and lesbian people could be married legally in the United States at one time? I don't think I was enthusiastic about of that idea 20 years ago and, and look where I am today and look where the country is. So the, the, the best thing about our country is we have the capacity for self-improvement. Um, you know, that the, the striving for, you know, that more perfect union. We're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect, but we can strive for improvement. And I think our system still has enough in it to allow for renewal, allow for change. Sometimes I was just listening to a podcast with uh, former President Obama, you know, it's often two steps forward and one step back, you know, and, and, and he was often frustrated by that in his time in the White House. But but I think that that we still take the two steps forward and we have to live with the one step back and then we keep pushing uh, for the next, uh, you know, the next step forward. And, and I, I think we can do that in terms of, you know, our competition with China. I still believe that, you know, ultimately, uh, and they have, you know, for all we talk about China's strength, they have huge problems. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a huge demographic problem that, you know, they, they don't have any children. Uh, they have their one child policy. They have huge, they have huge environmental problems. Um, there, there, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of problems that China is going to have to contend with. And, you know, tyrannies have, have trouble with these things. And I still believe, you know, wherever it is, human freedom still matters. And, and the best way to advance as a country is to create opportunities for your people to, you know, realize their full potential. And tyrannies don't do that. I'm not saying we're perfect at that either, um, but we still have lots of opportunity. And, uh, you know, and we have a big, diverse population. I mean, one of the things that we have, and I'm glad to see, you know, the current policies is we have immigrants. You know, my, my grandfather came to this country from some shithole in Lithuania when he was 13 years old um, with nothing you know, didn't speak English, uh, didn't have much of an education. And, you know, his son, my uncle went to Harvard and Harvard law, you know, in one generation. I mean, that was amazing. Um, so I still believe in those kinds of opportunities. Uh, we, we have to do better. Um, and not everybody has enjoyed all of those opportunities. And I want everybody to enjoy the opportunities that I had, my family had. Um, so we have, we have lots of work to do. It's good. I think, you know, being not satisfied, I think, is patriotic. Um, you know, people who would just say, oh, everything's good in America, um, you know, that, that's not patriotic to me. Uh, you know, our, our founders, you know, created a country because they were unhappy with the current set of arrangements. And a change comes from people who are unsatisfied, who, who demand better, and we should always demand better. So, uh, you, you know, you, you may not think you're patriotic, but to me, if you're seeking improvement in the country, that's the patriotic thing to do. So there's my soapbox. Uh, no, 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 no. I appreciate that. I appreciate My wrapping up, I, I, I was going to ask you the question that I ask everybody, but I have to ask you this question. Military, 
lobbyist, defense contractor. Are you going to run for office? <laughs> oh, you know, I won't say that uh, once upon a time I contemplated that. You know, one of the things about running for office is often, and 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 I won't say I, I haven't even been approached at times for it. I'm sure you um, have. I, after talking to you for yeah, an hour, yeah, but, I'm certain that you have been asked to run for office. Yeah, yeah. and and you know, it's something I, I I've noodled with at times, and um, uh, financially, it's not that easy to do. I mean, there's a very practical. I, I still well, I got kids that I had to put through college and things like that. You know, uh, devoting yourself to saying I'm going to leave my job and run for office. Uh, and in fact, you know, because of the jobs I've had, this is not true of everybody, but certainly working for APAC, working for Booz Allen and working for working in the military and working for Bloomberg, all of those jobs restricted my political activity very much. No, I mean, that was part of the rules. I'm not saying I did this. They told me, you know, in the military, your your activity is very restricted. I mean, you can vote and things like that, but but you can't be very publicly active in political stuff. Um as an APAC, you know, working for APAC, I was prohibited, for example, from giving any campaign donations to anybody. Um, they just said, no, you can't do that because we're totally nonpartisan and we can't have the perception. Um, Booz Allen, I guess I was a little less restricted, um, but I wasn't there very long. And then with Bloomberg, again, they wanted no political campaign donations of any kind to anybody. They didn't want me to say anything on Twitter or anywhere else. That's that crazy. Indicated I'm sorry, but that's crazy. crazy. <laughs> what, well, the, first they're, they're, the First Amendment and also yeah, Bloomberg no, they're, they're, donate to everybody they want. Yeah. They are doing well, that. That's a, that was a very odd thing. Is That was a very odd thing is while I was there, I can... I, and, and I got critiqued one time for saying something publicly and I pulled out the newspaper and it said, you know, Mike Bloomberg campaign or whatever. And I'm like, we work for the guy whose name is on the door who ran for president himself and is giving lots and lots of money. I mean, isn't this a little bit crazy that we're trying to say that somehow we're nonpartisan and we're not involved in these things. But that was, that was the ethos at the time. And those were the rules Happy to be, uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, happy to be an independent yeah, writer. Yeah, happy no, to be an I mean, independent writer. Free and like I say, now I can comment on whatever the hell I want to comment on, and I don't work for them anymore. So, uh, so the, the 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 restrictions are a bit off. But uh, you know, at some point in the future, again, if financially I could make it work, where I could devote the kind be. of time you will to, be. I'll see you in a couple of years. You know? You'll be one of the more famous <laughs> twenty one hundred alumni. One of the Twitch streamers, and this is for listeners of the show, one of the guests that was a, she's a TikTok star and like a streamer. I was watching TV and she was in an avocado commercial. I was like, ah, my God, look at her. Uh, but no, and I'm going to ask you the last question that we ask everybody else. What would you like to say to the people of the year 2100? Uh, I'd say, I hope we didn't screw it up too bad for you, I guess. <laughs> I hope we got the big things right. Uh, and he leaves uh, uh, the 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 legacy. I see twenty one hundred. Those will probably be my grandchildren. I guess I, I, I'm hoping we give them a world better than the one we found. Um, and uh, and there are those of us who are trying like hell. <laughs> well, I appreciate you talking to me, Lieutenant Colonel. W could you give me a good military sign off? Say some military stuff to give us your full military address and say this has been blah blah blah. Thank you for listening to 2100. If, if, if you'd like, I think that would be a fun way for it to end. 
Yeah, well, I'll, 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 I'll borrow a phrase from my, from my Navy brethren, even though I'm an Air Force guy. Uh, Navy guys always will send you off with wishing you fair winds and following seas. So that's what I'll, uh, I'll leave everybody is uh, fair winds and following seas. fiscal year proposed budget progressive senile pants shitter Joe Biden has asked for 703.7 billion dollars for the military budget 700 billion for a group of motherfuckers that have not won a war in my lifetime, for a group of motherfuckers that have done nothing but fail in my lifetime. Hey, must be good. That's good cheddar, man. If you could get that government cheese, the biggest welfare queens and the biggest tax, tax succubus sucking on the teat is this goddamn American military. And, and I, I must say, it, it, to be to to lose and to do incorrectly as often as they do, and to still be getting budget increases is the American model. If you if you if you want more money, fail and rely on the government. That is that is how you do it. If you look at Trump, that's how Trump got his money. All of Donald Trump's family wealth came from World War II loans that the government gave to build houses. That's how his father got rich. Uh, and that's and that's how he got rich, was essentially building on that thing. That's how Tesla and Elon Musk worked. It's these things called ZEV credits that Tesla can then sell. And then the military, it's just baked in. And then you know who 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 gets to do all the scamming? Military contractors. And and the and the supply chain and these scumbags Profiting off of war. And I'm not calling my guest Rob Levinson a scumbag, although I do disagree with his entire existence. Um, oh, yes, I don't. Uh, he have everything. Uh, he's never. Uh, I don't want to disparage him because he's a nice guy. He's a good guest. And if I wanted to disparage him, I should have done it to his face. But I, I and more on Rob Levinson. He was a nice guy. You obviously just listened to him. And and I think uh, the interest in him is more or less how regular he is, you know, this is someone who has done war and profited off of war. He's made a living off of death and destruction and he seems fine with it and he seems to 
be at ease with what his career has done and he most likely sees himself as a hero like you know that's what the military is supposed that's what you're supposed to think you know and um I don't I don't see it like that I don't think anyone's a hero especially if what you did was join a group yeah, it's, I mean, uh, uh, enough on that. You know, I've been dreading doing the end of this episode for weeks now. I, I'm, I'm doing this episode because I wanted to challenge myself. And, I, and I'll say this. This is not my favorite episode of the show. Uh, I think it made me angry the whole time. I think I, I hate thinking about this. I, uh, Joe Biden is giving $700 billion to the military. Destabilize the entire Middle East, destabilize Central America, decentralize South America, which means that they didn't fail. It means that they won. You know, you get a raise when you do good. So I guess by whoever's calling the shots and doing the orders, we're doing good. Kill Kasim Suleimani. <sighs> no. And, it, and it's only going to get worse, my people. Private security contractors made out of these military contractors are the next big thing. That's who just killed uh, the president of Haiti. Private military contractors. People who used to be employed by the American government and American military just killed the fucking president of Haiti. 2021, July, look it up. No, yeah, I mean... You're not going to hear me saying a lot good about the American military and and it's not about I and and I'm not even hating on the the servicemen and the troops because they're victims, you know? They're they're the people who join the military are either there are a couple kind of people. There's legacy people, there's there's hyper ambitious people like Rob Levinson and there's also people who are looking for a way out and I respect the way out method. Like that's everyone, myself included, was like, oh, maybe I'll join like the military so I could go to college for free because the college system's a scam. So it forces people into the military uh, who's been using video games and fucking movies to advertise to children so that they can go die. For, for oil, <laughs> for oil too, and for the greater good of the United States. Which, uh, fuck it, I am not, I don't care about the greater good of the United States, man. I do not give a shit. I think we deserve whatever's coming to us because we have fucked people over time and time again. And we deserve our comeuppance. And if, if I die because of what my country has done, uh, yeah, it would probably be justified, you know, because... There's blood on my hands. There's blood on your hands. If you're listening to the show, there's fucking blood on your hands. Every single one of us because our tax dollars go towards that $700 billion budget. It's 20 to 25% of the entire American budget. It's also the biggest polluter in the fucking world. So we are killing so much by continuing to have a bloated um, – Military, uh, yeah, just a bloated military filled with people like Rob, people who are just like, yep, I'm in, so I'm in. This is what I'm doing. I'll do stuff I don't agree with because that's cool. That's that's good. Taking orders is good. It's 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 good to just blindly take orders. No, it's the dumbest shit in the world. Um, any place where critical thinking is not encouraged is a trap. You know. Churches, <laughs> military, <laughs> sports. Yeah. and But sports is less harmless than those other two. I was talking to somebody about that today, how like a lot of these sports guys are 
anti-vaxxers and really misinformed because they didn't develop their critical thinking skills because they'd swing, come on, 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 swing the bat, swing the bat. You know, no, no, just go, go swing the bat. You don't, don't read, you know, <laughs> like you focus on your craft. Don't, don't learn. And, and that is how a lot of professional dummies are. I like people who are really good at one thing. That's why I like being a generalist because you get to know about a lot of stuff rather than being a bootlicker. Uh, yeah, no, I have nothing else to fucking say. The American military business is a bloated fucking whale that we need to fucking shoot and blow up. <laughs> hey, I'd love for a year of giving the military no money. And that doesn't mean that, that people who have served shouldn't get paid when they come home. Because that's another thing we're not fucking doing is paying people when they get home. Making sure these veteran heroes that this country supposedly gives a flying fuck about, uh, we don't make sure that they're not homeless. We don't make sure that their mental health is good when they come back. You know what we do? We uh, we tell them to wear their uniform to Applebee's <laughs> so they can get a free dessert and 15% off. And yeah, no. This fucking country is the fakest bullshit in the world. At least I'm honest about my troop stuff, you know? Are you? Seriously, I mean, no. I'm, and I think it's going away. I think it's going away, all that love. All that love's going away because what, what have you done for me recently? You know what the military has done for me recently? The National Guard fucking occupied my city, Philadelphia. Had to face off against these fucking military goons my age. People that they drove in from Lancaster just to keep the city safe. These motherfuckers just stood there. Drove tanks into the city just to park them. And then they shot tear gas into people's homes, but only poor black people in West Philly because... That's who they don't see as people because they're racist. That's why they're in the military because they want to go kill brown people because that's what they do in Call of Duty and they'd go like to do that. Yep. So that's enough of me disparaging the military. Um, I don't think I did. I don't think I did. I think I could have said way more stuff. I think I could have been, hey, do you know about these <laughs> military people killing and raping people in America? You know? On bases, you know, in the South, you know, in the East Coast, in the South. I think it was in Georgia. <sighs> Do we know about their suicide rate and their, how well, no one's helping them? Because like I said, the troops are victims. The troops are not heroes. They're victims. Maybe. Yeah. Yes. They are victims. They they need help. And 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 I think that we should fund the VA, defund the military, fund the VA. Simple as that. But that's it for me. Uh, thank God we don't have any fucking sponsors. I wanna die. Angel, I loved you all my fucking life. I thought we'd grow old with you as my wife. I can't even remember why you had to go. I wish I could see inside you, but I'll never know. You ain't given second chances to allow us to grow. So I guess my only choice is to go with the flow and say goodbye. And say goodbye. 
and say goodbye. So goodbye. I wonder why. I wonder why. Raytheon. Come get me.